We're continuing our studies in Oros HaTshuva, and we're in the fourth parak. The entire parak is um, kind of like a long essay, little bullet point paragraphs that are taken from all over Cook's journals that were put together by his Talmidim and by his son of Tzvi Yehuda, all centering on the theme of Tshuva Pratis Hayachidas and Tshuva Klalis HaTziboris HaUlamis. That is to say, there's a tshuva of the individual person. Every individual person is on a journey, is telling the story of their life as they progress towards higher and higher levels of service of Hashem. Whether the person is a tzaddik and has never done something overtly problematic in their life, or whether a person has hit rock bottom because they've completely unraveled and their moral compass has been turned in the opposite direction, in the wrong direction. Every person in the world, as Rav Kook taught us in the first three chapters, is involved in this, in this resurgence of a world before the world was created where enod milvado, where there was only Hashem. And so even the greatest tzaddik has some sort of occlusion of divine awareness. They're not completely aware of the fact that Hashem is everything, was everything, and will be everything. And that's a you know, I hope this doesn't sound heretical, but that's a good thing, meaning if not for the fact that we have a lack of, of awareness of the fact that Hashem was, is, and will be everything, and that when we say, we say Hashem is one, doesn't mean he's one to the exclusion of some of the gods of the Greek pantheon, but he's one to the exclusion of this table, to the exclusion of this cup of water, and to the exclusion of the person talking. Now, that's something that we don't want to be aware of in any kind of... Uh, if we were to be aware of that, we would cease to be like the rays of the sun getting too close to the ball of the sun. There would cease to be any distinction between the ray of the sun and the sun itself. And so Hashem purposely creates the world with a kind of veil between us and Him so that we can be part of this project of perfecting, of becoming. As Rav Cook writes elsewhere, and as we've spoken about a number of times, but it's been a while, so we have to pull ourselves back into the world of Rav Cook, which is so remarkable that Rav Kook explains that Hashem's perfection, the fact that Hashem is absolutely perfect in every single, He is the wisest and the most powerful and the kindest and every positive attribute you could say, Hashem is all of those things and more. But as a result of that, Rav Kook writes in a very landmark essay, which if misunderstood could be very troubling, Rav Kook says, well, isn't some aspect of perfection, isn't when somebody is perfect, isn't, isn't there some kind of shortcoming in that in the sense that we would all consider that growth is a positive value? In other words, if you say to somebody, oh, you know, they're not growing anymore, so that's a negative statement. We wouldn't want to say about somebody that they're not growing. That's not considered a, uh, a praise, a shvach. And since Hashem is the bal kol hashvachim and kol hakochos, then the power of growth, which even exists in simple plant life, right? Certainly in animal and human life, certainly we would have to say that there needs to be some element of growth in the divine, and that leaves us with a bit of a problem, because if Hashem is perfect, then there's no room for growth. And so if Cook writes in an essay, which we need to study at length another time, that Hashem's growth, uh, Hashem's growth valence, the, the fact that Hashem, there's an aspect of Hashem's revelation of Himself that is growing, is the creation itself. We are the growth aspect of Hashem that the, the creation itself, in order to allow there to be some lack of perfection so that we can then move slow, slowly towards that perfection, Hashem created a veil between us and His creations. 
and in doing so, gave us the potential to grow and to become further and further. To be more and more holy, infinitely so, both in this world and then once we set ourselves on that trajectory, even in the world to come. That potential for growth and that growth, that activated growth that we undergo is something which is independent of whether a person is categorically a tzaddik, a benoni, or a rasha. This is something that the whole world is moving back towards, but never quite able to access the divine truth of Ein Od Novada, there is nothing but Hashem. And this is what the Baal Tanya writes in Shari Yichud um, and we've spoken of this before, but just to again bring us back into this way of looking at things. In the Sefer Shari Yichud the Baal Tanya explained that even Moshe Rabbeinu, the most uh, divinely aware soul of Moshe Rabbeinu, who had Aspak Lari Me'ira, who spoke to Hashem Panim El Panim, even Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was no longer in a body, meaning after he's already left the world after 120 years and he's now kind of reunited with the Olam HaNeshamos, and being not inside of a body, he's not grounded by that experience of being embodied. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, with his high level of understanding of Hashem, outside of his body, which means completely without any blocking whatsoever, still identifies himself as being separate than Hashem. There's still a Moshe Rabbeinu who is experiencing Hashem outside of himself. There is always the Ani, the, the Ani, which is experiencing Hashem as an external thing. And because of that, we can move slower and we can move closer and closer towards that infinitude, that Ein Sof of Hashem, but never actually reach there. The only difference, as we've spoken about before, between this world and the next world is that in this world, we find process to be very frustrating. We find the process of you know, building a house to be very frustrating. We want to live in the house already. And we find the process of raising children to be frustrating. We don't want them to be, you know, civilized people standing under the chuppah with their beloved and to look and say, yeah, we did a pretty good job. We enjoy the, the coming, that we enjoy the seum at the end, but the process of, you know, doing the daf every single day and it's late at night and it's hard and is, is very challenging, is very difficult. The only difference between now and the world to come, as Rav Cook himself describes in many places, is that in the world to come, the process itself becomes almost as sweet as the, as the product. Climbing the tree, as it were, becomes as sweet as tasting the fruit. And so this process of tshuva is something that the whole world is undergoing. At every strata of existence, every level of existence, the world is undergoing and is yearning for tshuva. And in the fourth chapter of Cook, he's talking about the kind of blurring of the lines between the individual who needs to do tshuva and the individual story of my own, you know, midos that formed when I was uh, in those early stages of life and maybe even before that, you know, by conception and certain nature and nurture that a person has and it's very precise and it's very specific to my story and my place of birth and the, my teachers and my parents and my, and my children and my friends and my community and all the different trappings of my individual story are nested on top of or within the story of the whole world moving back towards Hashem. And so as Rav Cook has kind of been riffing back and forth in this, in this chapter, we're talking about how my individual actions affect my community and, and globally the whole world and the, and the whole cosmos. And how if I just would attune myself or dip my toe into the raging river of tshuva, which is rushing back towards the ocean of Einsof, of this infinite of this infinite experience of the divine, then I, as an individual, would be pulled along with it. And so there, it's kind of this, bo- both perspectives. On the one hand, 
the understanding that my individual actions affect the klal, affect the, the, the kind of larger picture of the world doing tshuva. And at the same time, I as an individual who am powerless to do anything can be swept along in a positive way by the tshuva that's happening in the world automatically if I would only just attune myself to that. If I just attune myself to that, then I'll be able to, to connect. Okay, Sorry, so... Yeah, yeah. I thought that the whole idea of like the work in this world is that after this world, we can no longer grow. Like this is the world for the growth. This is the world for it. The way that Rav Mendel Blachman, who is uh, one of the Russia Yeshiva of KBY, he's the head of the American program, the way that he once explained it to uh, me when I was 18 years old, and Ashir wasn't explaining it to me personally, was that if you imagine kind of like a, um, you know, a mathematical plane, right? So, and you have a, a vector, okay? So you start at a point over here, and... As you move, you're kind of like, hopefully, at least staying straight, and you're not, you know, there's just like two, two planes of existence that are kind of going, and there's an infinite kind of movement upwards like this, possibility, and I guess on a certain level, you have the ability to move away from that infinitely, and so a person is born, let's say, at this point over here, and they're moving straight. Now, when you move, when you change the, di- the direction of the, you know, of that, of that mathematical, that architectural dot, and you slightly move it the tiny bit this way, so then as you continue along that line, the distance between where you were and that new dot continues to expand uh, almost infinitely in the direction of, right, in the, in, in the direction of, a, of, of a wider gap between what you, where you started and where you now have gone to. That tiny little jump, as you move along the, the, the vector, as it's moving further along, the, the distance between where you started and where you, move, and where you are now is becoming infinitely greater. The only thing that we decide in this world is, well, fundamentally, I guess, let's just split it between two things, is whether we're heading in this direction or in this direction, right? And the process of what it means to be endowed with a Jewish soul and kol Yisrael yishlam chelek lolam haba, and the fact that, you know, all these midrashim about Avram Avinu protecting people from entering into Gehenim forever and all these different types of ideas which all need to be explained more fully means that essentially, the world to come is enjoying the trajectory. In other words, if I'm, if I'm, and that's why every, that's why every person enjoys a madur bifnei to use the language of Chazal. Every person has their own experience. I mean, very much like in this world, right? In this world, you have people who are sitting around the same table, who are sitting in the same room, and they're experiencing it in, in different ways. And so the world that we experience is really dependent on our, on our perspective, but this world kind of sets the trajectory, you're right, that there is something that's fixed on, on a certain level once we get to the Olam HaNeshamos. Um, although I guess we'll, we'll learn a little bit today about how we interact with other people who are acting in the world in accordance with the way that we've acted in the world and how we've influenced each other so that even after a person, let's say, leaves their body and they're in the Olam HaNeshamos, so there is still the potential for, for growth. That's Neshamos should have an Aliyah and this type of thing is... And we're going to learn a little bit about that um, shortly tonight. Um, but eventually, even, even though that's true, eventually we do reach a stage that's called the world to come. We reach a stage where this world, as the Ramchal describes and other, other people describe, this world has a finite amount of time where the world is moving itself in this direction of progress. And you are correct to be making a little bit of a quizzical face, if, if, that's the, if I'm reading the face, and, and it's the same thing, 
that this paradox is somewhat peculiar because if I'm moving infinitely towards infinity, so then what's the difference if I'm moving from here to here and I get it, you know, the, the way that we exist within time and space doesn't allow us to fully understand that, and that's okay. That's what the Rambam and Chazal already meant when they said, exactly how this works out. What I just gave you is a muscle well, that I... understand, the angle is just time. The angle is off, so, so then what is a function of time? Like, I don't enjoy it as quickly, because I'm, I'm infinitely moving up, right? As it continues to move towards infinity. So exactly how we experience that in a way of pain or pleasure or within coordinates that are not bound by time and space are somewhat funny. But that's, that's like an approximation that... That, that makes sense. Someone. Yeah, it gives you, gives you something to hold <laughs> on to, which is, which is what Chazal say, that when we speak about these things, it's it's just to give a little bit something for the ear to be able to like, at least imagine what it, what it might be like. So, okay, so let's jump into Rav Kukisel. So now, how I individually act and how I exist within the Klal um, is going to be the focus of, uh, of Rav Kukisel. Last time we spoke about how all of world history, if you just recall, this is Ostalid, so we have all of world history needs to be kind of looked at in a single glance. We need to be able to look at everything as happening in a single story, single unfolding, that the individual uh, stubbing of my, toe, of my toe or the individual fall that I have needs to be placed within the context of, of human history, right? And that all of human history is really a process of becoming and of becoming greater. And so one should not overly celebrate their own successes, nor should they you know, experience a sense of defeat when they fall down because really all of human history and all of development of the world from, you know, if you want to go in that direction, from like the earliest uh, amoebas that are being created all the way up to the creation of humanity and then the, and then the evolution of human thought of, of, you know, where we've come to in terms of understanding things as basic as, you know, slavery is not that great. And, uh, you know, and other developments of, of, of and, and freedom and liberty and these things, you know, um, as they're expressed with, within the Torah and as the Torah has been guiding us and as, as humanity has been guiding through the understanding of the Torah. So all of those things need to be seen as a kind of, as a, a single glance. We're looking at the entire project from beginning to end. And when we do that, so Rav Kook, that was last, last time, and Rav Kook says when we do that, we look at everything with a skira achas, in a single glance, we begin to see how we are this tiny little part that's part of this much larger picture. And there's something which is overwhelming about that, but there's also something which is very beautiful about that and is very reassuring of the fact that I'm being pulled along with that. Tonight, Rav Kook does a little bit of an about face. We'll read it inside. And, um, and this is in Os, Os Hay. In Os Hay in Paragdalet. So Rav Kook says, Be'emes i efshar lisromim al haruchanis it is not possible, says Rav Kook, to elevate oneself towards a tshuka ruchanis, towards a spiritual thirst, shall Yeshua saklal, for the salvation of the world. Without trying to make sure that I do my individual part to remove myself from my stumblings and my shortcomings. Meaning there's a lot of people, and I actually just had this conversation with a student um, right before I left to America. And 
we were talking about how he, he was saying that he, he struggled, you know, it's not, not the only one. Um, in fact, the person he was talking to also struggles with it sometimes. He was saying that um, he struggles with the concept of, of tefillah, specifically because he's not sure that there's like, he doesn't feel sometimes like when he's davening that there's anyone like on the other end of the line. So I asked him a very important question, which I, I mean, this is something which is a, a common feeling that people have. So I asked him a very, what I think to be a very important clarifying question, which I usually ask when somebody says something like that, which is, you feel like there's no one on the other end of the line for you, or you feel like when, you know, and I cited the name of a, a person that they think of as, as being a very righteous person, you know, uh, when uh, Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter, who is uh, a big tzaddik who lives in, uh, in, in Yerushalayim, so when he davens, there's also no one on the other end of the line, or it's specifically because there's no one on the other end of the line for you because you're not worth it, type of thing. And he was moda that it was more the, the fact that he felt like he personally doesn't have this line, but the notion that, of course, there is some sort of plan and there's some sort of divine providence and all of the stories about people's, you know, uh, just unbelievable. I, I was interviewing a, a student in a, in a yeshiva. I walked into this huge, walked in on a, on an Arab Shabbos. There was a, a basketball game going on and there was like 400 people in there. And I kind of like walked in through the back door thinking, because everyone was parking in the parking lot. I walked in and there were like 400 people in there. I was trying to find the office. And I walked all the way around the basketball court, bypassing all the people in the stands, because they were watching the game at it. And I see that there's some kid who's standing up against the wall, you know, in like one of the corners. And I said to him, I said, excuse me, do you know where I can get to the office? So he said, are you from Yeshiva Araita? So I said, yeah. He said, oh, I'm Alex. I'm the one kid that you're supposed to be interviewing in this, in this school. It was one kid out of like 500 kids. I walked right up to him. So that's like, okay, that's like a sweet story. But there's Maisim Bechol Yom, you know, reader of Biederman's, uh, you know, these unbelievable stories of Hashkacha Pratis. So a person believes in general that there's something called the Yeshua Saklal, that Am Yisrael is eternal and that the Jewish people are something special. And you just look at the story of the Jewish people's return to Eretz Yisrael after 2,000 years, and you see that there's something that's remarkable that's happening on the klal level. And then what happens oftentimes is the person will kind of excuse themselves or in some way take like a few steps back from that and say, that's true on the klal level, but what does that have to do with my individual act of kindness or my individual overcoming of my, my own basic urges? So Rav Kook says, You might think that you have some sort of yearning for the salvation of the Jewish people, you know, as a conglomerate organization, but that's really not possible. You can't actualize that true yearning unless you're willing to do the work of the tshuva pnimis amukam mikol Unless you're willing to do the dirty work of kind of like, you know, cleaning up your own inner world. And I even, I don't, I don't think I was here for this. I maybe I mentioned it last week, but I was, I was, um, I was listening also shortly before I, I left to America. So the new, for those who are familiar, uh, I think actually, oh, I, I saw him before, but I, I think he's still there. So the new Zusha album just came out, my dear friend Shlomo and his, his friend Zachariah, who I've only met once or twice, it's hard to say that we're friends. Hey Shlomo. Um, so, the new Zosha album came out. I was listening to it for like the first time uh, with headphones. You know, I had like a, a moment, I was listening to it on the way to work. And as I was listening to it, this is the way it is with, with any 
you know, good prayerful music as I was uh, on my way to work. So I, I was taking the bus, I got off the bus and I was waiting for the, for the light rail to take me one stop to the Iria so I could walk into the walls of the old city. And as I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the, to the album and I was getting swept up by the music and, you know, it was the, it was the tefillah after my tefillah shachris. And as I'm standing there and I'm, I'm listening to the album, so there was a guy who was standing like in the train tracks you know, it's not dangerous. You could see from you could see in both directions. And there was a you know a, a, a worker with like a broom and a and a little dustpan. And as I was watch, as I was like sitting and listening to the music, I was just like taking the whole thing in. And he he he, I saw I, I caught the moment where his eye caught like a piece of garbage on the train tracks in Yerushalayim. I like saw his eye, you know. And for him in that moment, his little piece of that wheel of the world perfecting itself. In that moment, there was a little, there was something where it didn't belong. You know, like the tzaddikim always say, like, there's nothing bad in the world. It just has to be in the right place. You know, that everything has to be in the right place. If you open up the, the, the refrigerator and there's a pair of pants in there, so the pants aren't bad, they're just in the wrong spot. And if you, it should if be you open, it should be, they should be in the freezer. You put the, the pants belong in a drawer and you open up your drawer and there's a banana in there. So like, that doesn't make any sense. And so nothing is bad in the world. It's just, you have to put things in the right place. And so... This person saw that there was something that wasn't in the right place. And he said, this needs tshuva. And I saw him take his little broom and his little dustpan and he sweeped that thing in. And in that moment, the whole, every, everything was perfect. You know? And I looked down the railroad track and I saw like, all the work he had done before. And there was the pristine railroad track in Yerushalayim. That was his avoda. That was his avoda. That was what he was bringing, the tshuva, the perfection of the world. And so a person could say, what is my little... Now, you have to be listening to the Nuzush album in order to get into that headspace of recognizing that my little piece of, you know, of cleaning up this tiny piece of garbage is somehow orienting the whole world towards its perfection. It's, it's that little movement of the dot, like we were saying before, Esti. Like when you jump one tiny little bit, the whole, the whole you know, direction, the whole angle of, of the world is shifted. And so when a person says, yeah, the world is, is generally doing better, but what does that have to do with me cleaning up this tiny piece of garbage? Or by extension, what does it have to do with me after I finish eating at a restaurant, you know, collecting all of the little pieces and trying to make it a little easier for the person who's going to clean up or whatever, you know, whatever small little piece of the puzzle that I'm doing. Uh, a little bit more uh, yashras in a business deal. A little bit more, you know, being careful about how I speak when there's somebody who rubbed me the wrong way and I have the opportunity to kind of like, you know, shift public opinion of them because I'm sitting in conversation with somebody who, who maybe. All of these small little things, a person can't take that and separate that from the Yeshua Saklal. And if you do, if you try to do that, you won't feel the true yearning towards the, the Chuka Olamis that's taking place. Amnam Yachid Sheshav Kamuvan Kulo. But rather, says Rav Kook, and Rav Kook is constantly taking and borrowing from Psukim and from Mamre Chazal and from from Sifra Kabbalah and everything, and you know, putting it in his blender, and that's why they call him Rav Cook, because he's, <laughs> he's cooking all the, he, has the, he takes all the best ingredients and he puts them together. So Rav Cook says, Amnam Yachid Sheshav, he's taking here, there's a Gemara in Yuma, the Gemara in Yuma, Pezayin, I think, Pezayin, I'm a bit, I'm a biz. Uh, could be off by a, a daf or two. The, um, the Gemara there says that if a person does tshuva, so then mochlin lo, they mochel him. A person does tshuva for, for, you know, a person hits rock bottom and they start to turn around their life. And turning around their life might mean, you know, uh, not drinking so much, you know. 
turning around their life might be an eating, eating a little healthier, like we saw in the beginning of, uh, of, of the Sefer, that tshuva tivis is the first step. And then after that, it might be, you know, taking some real concrete steps to make Talmud Torah a more present part of their life, um, etc. Everyone put in your, you know, fill in Mad Libs, fill in the, the blank according to your own, to your own life. But when, you're mo- when, when you start to do tshuva, so mochlin lo, they forgive you, and mochlin is kol olam kula. Because it's actually the exact opposite, says Rav Kook. It's not that, oh, the whole world is kind of improving and I don't have to do my part, but rather, exactly the opposite. When I do my piece, when I fix my little piece, and who knows the chain reaction, right? That guy, with its, quite literally, as we're seeing in the shir, that this guy who pulled a little piece of paper off the floor, doing his job earnestly, even if, by the way, even if, for a half hour before that, he was sitting on the side, you know, taking a cigarette break that he wasn't entitled to. Bonagid. Let's, like, let's, let's, let's make it like the strongest. He, 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 you know, guy yelled at his kids that morning and then sat on the side of the road, you know, wasting time instead of doing the job that he was being paid for and he was stealing from his employer, you know. And finally he gets up and he decides to clean up a little piece of paper at the exact right time that Hashem intended that I should be standing there and it inspired me and then I share it with you and who knows who you're gonna share, not necessarily the story or this anecdote, but who knows who this feeling is gonna move. It's a, some sort of like a butterfly effect that the whole world is being shifted by this guy's pe- picking up a piece of garbage off a train track. And so Rav Cook says quite literally, mochlin lo v'chula olam kulo, that together with his forgiveness, there's a then movement of the entire world in the right direction, which sets off a mechila, forgiveness. A mechila that Hashem recognizes that there was something that was not correct here, and I am now willing to, to forgive that. We could start to move things in the right direction. We can start to reconcile the world between a world that f- is forgetting about the divine and is trying to move towards perfection. Because after all, and I'll just, I'll, I'll stop harping on this, on this fellow and his piece of paper in a moment, but but it's worth it because even that's one small thing, I think, speaks volumes to what it means to overcome one's sleepiness and to sit and learn Torah for, you know, what the whole, the whole world is standing on, on Torah. So, you know, when you, when you look at a, a person who's, who's just cleaning up, a, you know, a piece of, of, of garbage off the floor and you recognize how that is mochlin, is kolo olam kulo, because we're able to then start to put the world back in its, in its proper direction. So... You know, I just I really want to take one more moment to kind of just appreciate how profound that is, that because of this one thing, mochlin kolo olam kulo. So I want to take a minute because it's a shorter piece before we move on in, in uh, in Rav Kook here. Before we move on in reading his words, to try to explain how exactly this works. You know, how does this work? And I, I think I I could try to come up with three different ways of how that I've seen in different books. Hence the the farm over here. And maybe we'll read some things inside, we won't necessarily read everything inside, but three kind of different ways which might speak to different people in, in you know, one person one way, another person another way, about how my individual actions, as small or as large as they might be, can begin to move the landscape of tshuva back towards a world where we can appreciate Eino Novado, where the world is doing tshuva. So the first uh, approach that I would take, I would say is a kind of psychological approach. And that is that when a person individually begins to act in a certain way, so the environment that a person is subjected to 
causes this kind of spiraling effect, which I think we were just describing, where the way that I act maybe affects the way that another person acts, someone who sees me act a certain way, then begins to act a certain way, and eventually we form some sort of coalition of people who are all, act, who are all acting better, and slowly that begins to have this net positive effect of being able to bring the world towards higher and higher levels of perfection. So I'll give you some examples of this that we see that will maybe hopefully you know, be able to, to bring this home a little bit. In addition to, of course, the famous Mamre Chazal that you know, when a tzaddik lives in a certain place, so when they leave that place, it creates a roshan. Now, you could think of that sort of like mystically, right? Or in one of the other two ways that I'll, I'll describe, and maybe there's other ways as well, but you could think of that as kind of like a mystical idea that the tzaddik is there, he has this protective power over the place, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but it could also just be that when you're in the presence of a great person, when you're in the presence of somebody who maybe is operating within a certain set of assumptions, so it becomes almost impossible with that person's psychological influence being uh, you know, right in front of you, it becomes almost impossible for you to act you know, in a way which is, which is so debased. In other words, if you're standing in front of a person who is not only not acting debased, but is holding themselves to this incredibly high state, Right? You're standing in front of a person who's eating chulin b'taras hakodesh, as it were. You're standing in front of a person who's every word, like Chazal say, that a Talmud Chacham, even their sichas chulin, even their simple talk, is so refined and is so elevated. So it may not be the case that you will become that, that level of tzaddik, but you're probably not going to be speaking foully. You're not going to be speaking, you know. There's this net elevation of the sviva, of this psychological sviva, as a result of this person's behavior in the world. In fact, there's a, a beautiful essay from the Lubavitch Rebbe, from the seventh Rebbe of Menachem Middle Schneerson. Uh, it's printed in a collection of his Ha'aros to, um, to Pirkei Avos, as well as it's printed in a number of the Lakute Sichos. It's an idea that I think he repeated more, more than once. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it's in uh, Sefer Bereshis in, in Chelek Dalid and maybe in Tesvav. I was looking it up before, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to exactly mark it down. So... If you're interested in the exact location, I can tell you after. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes that there's a mission in Pirkei Avos that says that there are ten generations from Adam till Noach, and that's to show us why are there ten generations from Adam to Noach to show you how much aricha sapayim Hashem has that Hashem is so slow to anger, right? Because it took ten generations for things to kind of devolve so so much that Hashem had to kind of control alt delete, you know. And, and restart the world. And then the Mishnah Ketijan says, and there are 10 generations from Noah till Avravinu, and Avravinu came along and was Mekabel Scharkulam, the Kibel Scharkulam. After 10 generations, Avravinu came along and he was Mekabel the Schar of all of them. He got the Schar of all these 20 generations from Adam to Noah, and from Noah to Avravinu. All of that schar that was waiting to come to, to, to the world was given to Avram Avinu. Now, the Gemara in Chagiga and elsewhere, which the Lubavitcher recites, talks about this concept of every person has a chilek in Olam Haba, and if he's zolche, so then he takes his share, or she takes her share in the world to come. And if they're not zolche, so then somebody else can come along, and if there's Zohar, not low, he takes his own, shel and he takes his, his friend's chilek. And not only that, but the Gemara there in Chagiga also notes 
that if uh, that if, if a person is a rasha, so it could be that the chilek of gehenim, so to speak, that again when we speak in these kind of terms, we shouldn't allow our our upbringing or the movies or books that we've read to kind of what that basically means is the the movement towards perfection or the movement towards imperfection. So a person is created with a certain amount of imperfection that needs to be kind of uh, placed in the cauldron of, of kind of getting rid of all those impurities. So if a person has, a, every person has some imperfections, you're born imperfect. And so if, if, the, if a Russia comes along, so they could take their chilek in Gehenim, they could take someone else's chilek in Gehenim as well. So the Baha'i said, what is this, uh, what is this, what does this mean? And what does it mean that Avram came along and he was notos charkulam? And what, what exactly is the mission trying to, to convey? And so the Rebbe says quite, quite simply that a person like Noach who came into the world, so Noach is the person who came into the world and should have, uh, should have been deeply negatively affected by those who were surrounding him. Noach is the paradigm of that person who, you know, maybe had a chilek in Gehenim, so to speak, and that chilek in Gehenim was taken by those who were around him. Meaning what? that any shortcoming that existed within Noach, and that's what Rashi means when he says that Noach was a tzaddik bidoro tav, in his generation he was a tzaddik, but he wasn't on the level of Avram Avinu, because his surroundings caused him to not be able to elevate psychologically. He, he was, just wasn't able to break through, and because of his surroundings, he was limited in how much he could perfect himself. Now, since what caused him to not be able to perfect himself to that degree that he should have been able to, it was his surrounding, it was the Siva. So then who deserves the chilek of imperfection that Noach was kind of given, that, that was rendered the, the chilek of Noach? We take that away from Noach because it wasn't really his fault, and we give it to those who caused him that imperfection, who kind of created the, the, the canvas upon which he painted that imperfect picture. And Avram Avinu is the exact opposite. That Avram Avinu is the one, and that's why he's maybe different, and that's why it doesn't say that Noah was Mechabel, the Schar, and all the other ones, because he didn't go out and positively affect other people's environment. Avram Avinu was the first one who had this idea that not only am I going to perfect myself, I'm going to make it easier for other people to serve Hashem. Which means that, of course, the people who served Hashem got their, their chilek of perfection, but because Avram Avinu made a psychological dent or, you know, I guess spruced up a psychological dent in creation and made the world a little bit more perfect and made it just harder to be a not nice guy. This guy is like giving everybody everything for free and is so hospitable. Like it's, it's just harder to, to, to act, you know, not in a nice way in the presence of Avram Avinu. And so therefore, Avram Avinu is not only Zohar his own chilek, but really the chilek of his friends, the chelko shel chavero, also really becomes the part of the spiritual wealth of Avram Avinu because he really is the one who brought it into the world to begin with. And there are so many other examples of this. I'll just give you one other one where, I guess this is in the opposite direction, where we see that, again, you don't, don't really need the source material, but it does help to reinforce the idea. But we know that a person is so deeply influenced by their, by their surrounding, by their siva. There's a, a comment of the Maharal that came to mind when I was thinking about this. The Maharal in the Sefer Gur Aryeh, in Parshas Maseh, is addressing a question that is bothering Chazal already in the Gemara and Makos, and Rashi is, is, is dealing with it uh, as well. Parshas Maseh, of course, uh, outlines the Aryeh Miklat, the, the cities of refuge that a person who accidentally kills somebody has to run to in order to save their, 
to save their life from the Gaul Hadam. So the Gemara notes that it's quite fascinating that if you take the number of Ari Miklat that exist and you look at how they're broken up, you'll see that exactly half of the Ari Miklat are in Eretz Yisrael and half of the Ari Miklat are on the Ever Hayardin, on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, if you look at the population control of the Jewish people, you will see that only two and a half uh, of the Shvatim were on one side of the Yardin, and the rest of the Shvatim were on the nine and a half of the of the Shifteka that were remaining were on the uh, were on the were in the Eretz Yisrael side of things. And so, how does it make sense that for two and a half Shvatim you have the exact same number of locations that you have in Eretz Yisrael? So the Gemara says, well, that's because on the other side of the Jordan River, there was a place called Gilad. And the Gemara in Makos brings down this concept that Gilad, nafshe um, In Gilad, there were a lot of murderers. And so therefore, they needed more Are Miklat. Because in Gilad, there were a lot of murderers. So Rashi quotes this in, when, when the Gemara's, when the Sukkim, um, excuse me, are going through the placement of the different Are Miklat. So Rashi notes that there are an equal number of Ari Miklat outside of Eretz Yisrael as there are inside of Eretz Yisrael, and yet the numbers of people just don't seem to match up. And so Rashi quotes this Gemara of Begilad Nafshi Rotzchen. So the Maharal jumps on the Gemara, really jumps on, on Rashi, but he's really bothered by the Gemara, and he says, you don't go to an Ir Miklat for killing somebody on purpose. Who cares if there are more murderers in Gilad? Even if there are more murderers in Gilad, you only go to an Ir Miklat if you've killed somebody accidentally. So what does that have to do with the number of Ari Miklat that exist outside of, the, of Eretz Yisrael versus inside of Eretz Yisrael? So I, I, I imagine you could probably already intuit what the Maharal says in light of what we've been talking about, but the Maharal says that if you live amongst the Ari Gilad, even if you don't live in Gilad, but if you live amongst murderers who are killing people on purpose, there are just going to be more accidental murders also because human life is not going to be as well protected. People aren't going to be as careful to check underneath the ladder when they're lowering down the piano, as you see in the cartoon, you know, and when they let go and like the guy gets squashed because they're just ex- overexposed to murder in a way where their psychological barometer for what's considered acceptable becomes way down and therefore the accidental murders are also going to be more frequent in, in Gilad and on the other side of the island. And therefore you need to have that requisite number of Ari Miklat. So the first way I would say that Mochlin Lo, the Kolo and Kulo, is that when the individual person kind of pushes the envelope and slightly nudges the line, the, the, the place of battle, like, you know, Rav Dessler's famous notion of like the, the Nekuda HaBechira, the Nekuda HaBechira, the Bechira point. So that's on an individual level that, you know, at this point in my life, I can't really fathom, and any person, I guess, especially in this topsy-turvy world, any person can be pushed in any direction at any given point, but I can't really imagine at this point in my life, you know, struggling with keeping Shabbos. You know, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, ritualized for me and it's so enjoyable. I can't really, it's not a struggle for me to keep Shabbos. So if that's, every person has things that are already on this side of like you won this part of the battle and there's other things that like are also just completely, I can't imagine, you know, being on a level where I literally only put food in my mouth if it's to help me continue to serve Hashem at the highest levels of Avodah. Like never eating food for, you know, just for the sake of it. You know, so that's also not where the battle's taking place over there. And so there's a place in the middle where the battle is taking place, and that's true on an individual level, but for what we're seeing with Rav Kook here is that my individual moving of the battle 
as is true probably in a real war, is that an individual soldier is kind of pushing a little bit the battle line in this direction is a net gain for the entire, uh, for the entire people. And that's kind of like on a psychological register. On a second uh, way of kind of looking at things in terms of mochlin lo v'kolo olim kulo, I would say is a slightly more uh, kind of like protective zchus um, type of, 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 uh, of um, way of looking at things. So you have, you have, let's say, a person who, this is maybe a lot more along the lines of the Rambam, we find the Rambam in Hilchah Shuva, that a person should always see themselves as being 50-50 in terms of their, you know, their mitzvahs and averos, and if a person does one mitzvah, they can kind of tip the scales, not only for themselves, but for the entire world. And so on a kind of a protective register, the word I was looking for before, on that kind of like protective plane of, of existence, we could say, as, as we find, for example, the Rashi notes that before the Jewish people went into to battle against the seven nations, so Rashi says, uh, when, the, when the Pasuk says that the Meraglim were supposed to spy out to see im yeshlo eitz o ayin, if there's a tree or not. So the Gemara says, is there a tree or not? A tree, as Rashi points out there, is sometimes used as kind of like a metaphor for a tzaddik. Tall, strong, right? Tzaddik katamari frach. The tzaddik, like a date palm, will blossom. So to see if there's any tzaddikim there, right? Rashi said that part of the job of the spies was to go see if there's any merit that's protecting the, the, the nations of the world. And so we have this concept that when a person on their own individual plane does tshuva, when a person is going to focus on making sure that tshuva pnimis amuko mikol avon on their individual level is, is, is taking place. So then, when Hashem forgives that person, it kind of tilts the scales for everybody. Another two places where we see this idea, and we'll move on quickly from this idea to the last one, and then we'll finish up with the, with the piece from Rav Kook, is, for example, you find in the Rambam in Hilchus Avel. This is a very powerful um, passage that's found in the Rambam that I remember as well, that same uh, Rebbe, of Mendel Blachman, who, who shared that point about the Nakuda. So Rabbi Blachman, also I, I recall, um, I went to Israel in 2012. I went to, I went to Israel in 2012. No, no, I'm sorry. I, no, I'm sorry. I made Aliyah in 2012. <laughs> Let's do this again. I made Aliyah in 2012. As a student, I was 2002. 2002. I graduated from eighth grade in 1999. 2002, I can still remember the little tassel on my, on my uh, thing. 2002 is when I graduated high school. And then uh, 2002, 2003 is when I went to... Were you what? Daniel? What's 98? 98 was eighth grade. Yeah, 2002, therefore, was high school. Oh, you said 98. My brother-in-law was there. Daniel Nagel, was he there? Yeah, 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 sure. So then 2002, 2003 was... I knew him before also from, uh, from Camp Missouri. He went to Missouri. So 2002, 2003... 2002, 2003 was when I was in Israel for the year, which for those who are keeping track, unless I'm mistaken about this also, I'm pretty sure that my senior year was when 9-11 took place. And so, is it correct? Okay, so my, so so Josh was a freshman, my brother was a freshman, I was a senior, and the following year was the first Yortzeit of 9-11. And Rav Blachman came in and and gave a shir on 9-11 where he spoke about this Rambam. And that was the first time I heard, heard this Rambam. And I remember immediately afterwards, 
uh, calling my parents to tell them how, how grateful I was for them. That was the power of this. Uh, you don't have to remember that. That I know for sure. That I know for sure. But I remember being deeply moved by that, by that Rambam. And the Rambam lays out for us this kind of, I think this is like the linchpin of this second mode of trying to understand how I relate to everyone else. This is not on the psychological register where I spiritually affect other people based on, again, not mystical, but like just pure psychology. If, if I create an environment where people are supposed to be acting a certain way, then people will be acting a certain way. That was like the first way. The second way is that the Ramam writes, Anybody who doesn't take a moment to mourn when something tragic happens to an individual or to a community or to a nation and doesn't take a moment to kind of like reflect on how we could have gotten to such a place. And by the way, I think, and that's why I put the second, I think that this kind of leads in from the psychological. Meaning from the, from the place of the psychological, that's what, if a person doesn't recognize that every human being is, is collectively responsible for setting the tenor that could allow something to happen, again, there's a certain collective responsibility of moving things in the right direction. So if a person doesn't, Ella, what should, but rather, what should a person do? How should a person react to some sort of tra- tragedy? Rather, every person should have some, some level of anxiety, some level of, of, of you know, taking it personally. And they shouldn't just have that be, a, you know, this blanket of anxiety that just paralyzes them, but rather they should use that as an impetus to kind of check their actions, not to take necessarily personal blame for the whole thing, but to check their actions to see how they can improve. And anybody who doesn't, do, and to be yachzer b'tshuva. There's such a powerful line in the Rambam. And if something happens to one person in the Chabura, like if there's a group of friends who are very close and, one, and something happens to one of the people who's in that Chabura, so then the entire Chabura needs to take stock. Now what's the basis for this concept in the Rambam? Like what is the fact that, you know, I have a bunch of friends and this friend, something happened to them. What does that have to do with me? I didn't get punished, right? I mean, or did I? And that's what the Ramam is exactly, is, is exactly saying. How, how numb must a person be in order to say that if somebody else who is part of my group and who I care for gets punished, so then that has nothing to do with me? That I, I, there was nothing that I could have done to affect this situation in some way? The inverse of that, and so the Ramam goes through a whole series of how a person should navigate the first three days of Avelis, and then the seven days of Avelis, and then the Shloshim, and then the year, and how a person should slowly kind of reacclimate to the world in a way where they're not thinking about how they could, you know, how they could do tshuva for, for this thing that happened. Now, the, the inverse of that is an idea, and this is an intense idea, which, if taken wrongly, becomes, you know, someone standing up on public television saying that this tornado or earthquake happened because... These people were doing X, which is the exact opposite of what the Ram says you should do. It doesn't say you should go out and tell other people what to do. It says you should be a flashbang from myself and figure out how you could add to the... Right? It's a very personal type of thing. It's not to go tell people what they're doing wrong, unless you're another, I suppose. And the inverse of this is what we find in the Sefer Sichos Musr. In Maimur Tzadiches, in Sichos Musr, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz has an essay that's called Mishpatei Hashem, The Judgments of Hashem. And here he quotes the Pasuk from Sefer Dvarim, Hatsur... Tamim po'alo. Hashem's works, Hashem's actions are tamim, are perfect. And what that means, that Hashem's acts are perfect, and like we say, Hashem's actions are, are tzidko, Hashem's actions are, are righteous, it means that part of taking into account, and this is not like a, a light theological assertion, which the Sikhs 
you know, it's like a five-page essay where he, where he, or four-page essay where he, where he quotes, you know, copiously from various different sources in Chazal and Sukkim to say that when Hashem brings some negative thing into the world, it's the sum total of looking at all the different people who are going to be affected by that, right? So if, if you know, if, if one person gets uh, sick with COVID and it causes us not to be able to have the sheer, you know, live, so then, again, it's a small fry thing, assuming that everybody gets better. And, but when, some, when, when, one, when one person has, a, you know, even something which is not even directly affecting me, I don't know, a friend of mine breaks their arm, God forbid. So part of the, part of the mishpate Hashem, part of the, you know, Hashem's kind of balance sheet of trying to figure out whether this should happen is how is this going to affect Davidal? Meaning, if it's going to cause me to exert a sigh and to say, such a good guy, how could something like that happen to them, you know? Or some other small or major thing that takes place, part of that is how is that going to affect emotionally, financially, psychologically, you know, uh, physically, all other people who are involved. And again, exactly how that score sheet is tallied, that's, you know, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it is something that's happening, or that's how we should relate to it, independent of our ability to understand the intricacies of Hashem's world, tells me that the opposite is also true. That if a person does tshuva, this is not on the psychological, I can do tshuva in my own room where nobody knows about it and there's not a guy on the street who gets caught you know, you know, in the act of cleaning up a, a piece of paper and it causes this whole big emotional wellspring to open up inside of somebody. But it's just something that happens between me and myself and no one ever finds out about it. Nevertheless, mochlin lo v'kola olam kulo because there is this more spiritual, almost borderline mystical thing that as a result of the fact that we are related to each other, and something that happens to me, by definition, also happens to people who care about me. So therefore, mochlin lo v'kola olam kulo, and so my individual story of tshuva is very much tied to the story of everybody else's tshuva. Okay, the final and last piece, which I would say is overtly mystical, okay, is on the level of looking at the tshuva that an individual person does as somehow affecting the neshama klalis of the Jewish people. That if we look at the entire Jewish people, as Rav Kook will and does, as a koma shlema, as kind of like this large composite being. And the people, let's say, who are exceptional bali chesed or, or bali tefillah, you know, which I, I was, at least in my poetic sense, would, would, would relate to the heart. You know, they have big hearts. Big hearts for prayer, big hearts for, other, for opening their hearts to other people. You know, and the tamari chacham are the heads and, the, and maybe, the, maybe the bali chesed are less heart, maybe the bali chesed are arms. You know, or the arms, or the legs, or they're running and doing stuff. And you have the people who are, who are doing all the different parts of what it means to have a functioning nation. So we are all part of this koma shlema. And so there's a number of places where we find in, in the writings of the Svas Emes that the actions of an individual person affect the, the whole soul in the same way that the actions of my arm affect the rest of my body, not in this way of kind of like a protective shield of, like we were saying from the Rambam, that when I have certain amount of merits, so then maybe it protects other people from getting punished because, because maybe, you know, that would affect me negatively. And so there's this kind of spreadsheet, this Excel sheet that's being used in order to balance out, like, how is this going to affect everybody? But much more straight to the core of my being. That by doing tshuva myself, I actually affect those, first of all, in my outer circle, because they're probably closer to that same part of the body. And by extension of that, really the entire Jewish people are being affected 
by my individual soul elevation because my soul and your soul are really all connected to each other. So the Svasim is just give you two examples to kind of bring this down a little bit and then we'll finish the piece in Rav Kook and we'll call it a night. There's a very short piece in the year Tafresh Mem Zayin in Parshas Vayeshev in the Svasemes, where the Svasemes quotes from the Gemara that talks about, you know, all the different people throughout history who are Ma'akev, who are Ma'akev, uh, the, you know, the rest of society. So the Gemara says that, like, Hillel was so poor, and yet he, stu- he studied Torah, he became, you know, Hillel. So that's Ma'akev, all the poor people, because no one was as poor as Hillel. Right, the famous story of Hillel, he slept on the roof, and, right, and, and uh, you know, really, Huda Nasi was so rich, and so he's mocking all the rich people, that they also have to become great people, because you can't say, oh, because I was so wealthy, so I was busy, you know, running my businesses, I didn't have time to learn, or I was so poor, I didn't have time to learn, or, and the Gemara says, Yosef HaTzadik, that's why it's in Parshat Vayeshev, Yosef HaTzadik is Mechai of all the Rishayim. Yosef HaTzadik is Mechai of all the Rishayim, that even though Yosef had such big tests, so nevertheless, Yosef was able to overcome himself and he became a tzaddik despite all of his, despite all of his, his tests. And so therefore, that's ma'akiv. And nobody could say, oh, you know, I, I can't become a great tzaddik. Yosef had big tests. He was thrown away from his house at the age of 17. He didn't have, you know, he didn't get a gap year in Israel. He went get a gap year in Egypt, right? And so he was still able to, so let's say you have a person who wasn't able to go to Israel for you and say, oh, now I'll never be able to be a tzaddik because I didn't have my year in Israel or whatever, right? So... God forbid, you can't say such a thing because Yosef Atzadik is ma'aki of all of us because he was put in the worst situation and he was able to overcome. So it says this fast sentence, and maybe the question is not so strong, but what he says here, you know, I mean, maybe it is a strong question. Right? The, but this fast sentence says, how could, you, how could you say that Yosef Atzadik, I understand Hillel, you know, Rabbi Huda Nasi, to say that you're poor or you're rich, that's like, that's something you find yourself in and like, the Seder, that's either you are poor or you are rich and Maybe you worked yourself to those, to those places by, you know, losing all your money or gaining a lot of money. But we can all kind of sense as the Sassimus that there's a fundamental difference between these externalities of wealth, on the one hand, that Rehuda Nasi has and poverty that, that Hillel has, and Tzidkus, which is something which is more embodied within the persona of the, of the, of the, of the person. Yosef Tzadik was Yosef Tzadik, after all. There's some element of nature that Yosef Tzadik is you know, born as the Ben Zakunim of Yaakov Avinu, and he's, he's this tzaddik of a guy. And we can all recognize that there are people who have higher levels of tzitkus. So how could we say that Yosef HaTzadik is Ma'akev the Rishayim, when at the end of the day, there are people with, you know, higher levels of sensitivity and people with lower se- levels of sensitivity. So the Sassim says, the Gemara doesn't mean that because Yosef HaTzadik made himself great, therefore we have to be like Yosef HaTzadik. But when we say it's ma'akiv everybody else, what that means is that when Yosef HaTzadik overcame his personal nisayon, he changed the course of history. He changed the oversoul of the Jewish people, which contains not only all the people living today, but that, the same thing we could say about Avram Avinu and the Akedah, that these kind of monumental actions shifted the, the very nature of the soul of the Jewish people in such a way that it's not that Yosef was a big tzaddik and I am me and we have nothing to do with each other. But Yosef's action created, as part of the archetype personality of what it means to be a Jewish person, he moved the, you know, if on the individual scale we have that vector where the, where the dot moves slightly in the, in the upward direction when I do something good, there are people who are capable of doing that on a, on a soul level for the Jewish people. 
And so if the Jewish people, if the Jewish people have now been moved through the act of Yosef Tzadik, that demands something of me. And so the Sfasimist explains the Gemara, when we say that we're ma'akev based on the actions of Yosef Tzadik, it means that Yosef's overcoming himself demands something of me because my soul and Yosef's soul are part of this oversoul of the Jewish people, are part of this koma shlema of the entire process of the Jewish people unfolding. And I'll just take it one last step before we finish the piece of Nerf Cook, and we'll have to get to this uh, printout from Oros next time, so hold on to your sheet. But the Svas MS takes this kind of one step further in a different piece. He has this all over the place. I just took two, two select uh, teachings. He has this again in Parshas Vayira. In Parshas Vayira, there's a famous Kalvachomer that Moshe Rabinu makes, which on the surface gets a lot, I mean, gets a lot of attention. On the surface, doesn't re- seem to make a lot of sense. The Pasuk that I'm referring to is that, Yosef, that uh, Moshe Rabinu says to Hashem, the Jewish people are not listening to me because of their kotzer uh, ruach, eich yishme'eni paro. The Jewish people aren't listening to me because of their backbreaking labor and everything like that. They, they won't listen to me that I'm going to take them out of Mitzrayim. So how, could paro, how is paro going to listen to me? Right? Now on the surface, the way that most people would understand that statement of Moshe Rabbeinu is that if the people who are being enslaved can't hear the message that I'm about to free them and that's what they want, so then Paro, who doesn't want them to be freed, is certainly not going to listen to the message. That's the most simple, probably shot interpretation. But everyone's kind of bothered by the hyper-literal, you know, Kalvachomer, that the Jewish people aren't going to be able to listen to me because of their backbreaking labor. So how's Paro going to listen to me? But Paro's not involved in backbreaking labor. Paro has plenty of time to sit and meditate over the words of... Meaning, this, right, if you, if you take it kind of hyper-literally, then Moshe Rabbeinu is saying that if the Jewish people can't aren't going to listen to me because they don't have any time to sit and really meditate and let it sink in what I'm saying because they're just so busy that it's going to go one in one ear and out the other because they're just trying to survive and not get beat. So then when you kind of transfer that over to Paro, like, of course Paro is going to listen because he has all the time in the world to listen to you and to, to kind of let the message sink in. So how does the Kavachomer work out? So the Svas Emes writes on a deeper level, I'm not sure that that answers the literal reading of the question, but the Svas Emes says, and this is so, so beautiful and so profound, that it's not only true that Yosef HaTzadik's action fundamentally changed the Jewish people's orientation towards chet, towards sin, in such a way that behooves something of all of us, that, 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 that demands something of all of us, but also because the Jewish people represent the kind of soul of all of humanity, that what Yosef HaTzadik is on the level of tzadik vis-a-vis the Jewish people as a nation, if you then kind of take that out one more circle, the Jewish people are the Yosef HaTzadik of all of humanity. And certainly the world's superpower at the time, it's Ryan. So that's, that says the Sasemes, what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying is, if the Jewish people don't hear the message and don't understand that the time has come for their freedom, so then this, this, if the soul of the world doesn't understand that, then how can the body of the world understand that? The Jewish people are the soul of the world. And so if, if the message comes to the Jewish people, you are redeemable, which is really the message of Mitzrayim, that despite the fact that you fall into the 49th level of Tumah, if the Jewish people, which is the soul of the world, can't understand that the time for tshuva has come and the time for rectification has come, then how can those who are kind of siphoning off spiritual energies from the rest of the world, how could Paro change if the Jewish people aren't willing to change? Because it's not just that the Jewish people couldn't believe they were leaving Mitzrayim, they also kind of didn't want to. I mean, you look at the story like it was... Uh, we want to go back to Mitzrayim, it was simple then, we just, you know, eat fish and watermelon and no mitzvahs, and just like, let us just have it easy. 
all this, you know, demand of spiritual success, you know, perfection is, is really intense. So if the Jewish people or the soul of the world can't understand that the time of, of tshuva has come, then how could Paro, who is drawing his spiritual energy from the Jewish people, get the message? And so I'd say that that's the third kind of way that when a person does tshuva on an individual level, it affects the oversoul of the rest of, hum- of, of first the nation and, and then the rest of, of humanity. Let's just finish our cook here. When, a one, when one person does tshuva, right? you kind of hear several of the different interpretations that we said before in, this, in these words of Rav Kook. Then, then, the, then the masses of people are able to, to elevate themselves to this ideal, this new ideal, which has been presented to the world, whether psychologically, or because there's some mechila, or, or perhaps, you know, we're changing the very fabric of the soul of the, of the nation. Which is hidden within the soul of the nation. As a result of this repentance, this tshuva, this rectification of the individual. Who is returning, who is returning to, the, to the goal, to the aim, Shav Lamatarazu is returning to this aim, shall his Afsharus Hazarechas Chukas Gaon Hauma Bitarasa. To the possibility, reawakening the possibility that when I, on an individual level, and this is, well, I guess, a good place to end, that the most simple explanation is that when I, as an individual, stare my own shortcomings right in their face and say, but there's still the possibility of doing better, there's still the possibility of rectification, no matter how many times I messed up. So that reawakening of the possibility for, as Rav Kook describes so beautifully and poetically, the shining rays of, of this yearning for the perfection of the, of the purity of the nation, when I look at my own small self and I say, you know what, I could still do this better. I know that I could do this better. I know that my davening could be better. I know that my learning could be better. I know that my midos could be better. I know that my relationships could be better. When a person looks at their own shortcomings and decides, I could do this better, then that, that sets off a chain reaction that creates a belief in the betterment of the entire nation. And like we just said from this last MS, once the soul of creation decides that the, the tshuva is available, so then the rest of the world as well will follow suit and will be zochet to see the tshuva of the entire world. Be zochet to the gu'ula shleim of amitas. Amen.